good afternoon. You're listening to Let the Bible Speak. Let the Bible Speak is the radio ministry of the Free Presbyterian Church. Stephen Pollock is the pastor of the Free Presbyterian Church of Malvern, Pennsylvania. Thank you for joining us today as he opens the Word of God and lets the Bible speak. Let's turn again the Word of God tonight, as I've been doing in recent studies, uh, to this Old Testament portion of Scripture, uh, the book of Nehemiah. We'll turn tonight to, to Nehemiah chapter 7, and we'll read from the verse number 1. Now it came to pass when the wall was built, and I had set up the doors, and the porters, and the singers, and the Levites were appointed, that I gave my brother Hananiah, and Hananiah, the ruler of the palace, charge over Jerusalem. For he was a faithful man, and feared God above many. And I said unto them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun be hot. And while they stand by, let them shut the doors, and bar them, and appoint watches of the inhabitants of Jerusalem, every one in his watch, and every one to be over against his house. Now the city was large and great, but the people were few therein. And the houses were not builded. And my God put into mine heart to gather together the nobles and the rulers and the people, that they might be reckoned by genealogy. And I found a register of the genealogy of them which come up at the first, and found written therein. And these are the children of the province that went up out of the captivity, of those that had been carried away, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away, and came again to Jerusalem and to Judah, Every one unto his city. And then you have the listings and the, the numbering of the people uh, by that genealogy in the rest of the chapter. And we'll see some verses later on in the message tonight. Again, as we come to the Word of God and we come to this portion of God's Word, the book, of course, named after the central character, we would all testify that we greatly admire this man, Nehemiah. You can't but be impressed by his faith in God. His faithfulness to the task given him and his fortitude in the face of great trials and opposition. He was no quitter. He kept on going to the task that was given to him despite the challenges that came across his path. And so he read uh, recently the verse number 15 of chapter 6. So the wall was finished in the 20 and 5th day of the month Elul in 50 and two days. The wall has been finished. And that's how chapter 7 then begins. And now it came to pass when the wall was built. The wall is built. And at this point, even the doors have been hung upon the gates. So success and progress in the work of God has been enjoyed under Nehemiah's hand. But now is not the time to put the feet up and bask in the glory of a task completed. It's a large city. But at this point, verse 4 tells us that no one or very few are living within the city confines. Now this issue really introduces the next section. You come to chapter 7, you're coming to a new section in the, in the book, The Wall Has Been Built. But now what's going to happen next and in many ways, this chapter itself is a, a linking chapter to what will follow. We'll see in, in chapter 8, there is the, uh, the spiritual rededication of the people of God to the law of God. So this is a, a linking chapter between the building of the wall and then the spiritual renewal that will follow uh, later on in the book. 
And what I want to do tonight, I want to just really list, list five, I want to list five things that, that arise out of this chapter that I believe are edifying and applicable to your situation uh, today. And we'll go through them very, very quickly. The first one is this. There is the challenging of the community of God's people. There is an issue here whereby the people of God, the community, are challenged. The people in Nehemiah's day would have to come to the place where they would subordinate their own privileges and ambitions for the greater good of the work of God and the prosperity of the people of God. They had to come to the point that they would put God's work above their own preferences and their own privileges. The commitment they have shown in completing the walls was now required for them to repopulate Jerusalem. And verse number four, it kind of just just hangs there for a time. The people were few therein. But that theme, it recurs in chapter 11 and verses one and two. So please turn over there, uh, chapter 11, verse one and two. And here again, you have a, have a couple of verses that really only make sense in light of that verse back in chapter 7. And in Nehemiah 11, it says, And the rulers of the people dwelt at Jerusalem. The rest of the people also cast lots to bring one of ten to dwell in Jerusalem, the holy city, and nine parts to dwell in other cities. And the people blessed all the men that willingly offered themselves to dwell at Jerusalem. And the challenge that faces God's people, the wall has been rebuilt. But the question is, who is going to be willing to pull up their roots and resettle in the city? You remember the account that Nehemiah received. Who would want to live in such a city? You think back to chapter 1, it's in wreck and ruins. And who's then, who's going to say, well, I will do this. I will do this for the greater good of the work of God. And it's that question that hangs over that verse in chapter 7. Hence, I, hence I, I mention it to you now. Because that verse in chapter 7, uh, the people were few therein, is a significant challenge and a problem to the people of God. And it comes, I believe, by implication as a challenge to our souls. We as believers, it is right and proper that we have a concern over the work of God in its totality. In other words, we ought to put the greater good of the work over and above our own selfish ambitions. And the challenge that faces Nehemiah here implies such a Christian outlook on life. God delights in the labors of individual believers. But as a body, we must seek to labor for the good of the whole. It's not about what we get out of the work. It's about what we can give for the greater good of the entire work. Now, in our society, the right of the individual is paramount often. But the church must not reflect the world in these things. And our desire is to consider the benefit of the entire body. The people of God, they're being asked to sacrifice uh, perhaps their own home, perhaps their own farm, perhaps their own family. And they were asked to do that for the greater good of the wider work of God. And again, my mind immediately went to the verse we studied in part on the Lord's Day. There we looked at Philippians chapter 2 
And we saw there, let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man his own things, but every man also on the things of others. And so we can think about, of course, the, the missionary, of course, who may, who may leave family and friends and they may go uh, to serve God. But for all of us, there are times we have to sacrifice rest and leisure and other things, sacrificing our, our own preferences, sacrificing our own ambitions for the betterment of the work of God. Please just be prayerful, be considering, what can I do for the well-being of the body of Christ the second thing then, having thought about that challenging of the community, is the establishing of the worship of God's people. Mentioned already that the reason for the concern of Nehemiah regarding Jerusalem has to do with the condition of the temple and the worship of God's people. There are many benefits in having the walls rebuilt. Many benefits. There were temporal benefits. There were practical benefits. There were business benefits and all of those things. But for Nehemiah, the reestablishing of the worship of God was first in his mind. He wanted God's worship reestablished in the way that God had ordained. Uh, remember the burden of the, the, the captives in Babylon? By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. And the burden is, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? And the desire is to be restored back to Jerusalem, restored back for the, the well-being and the promotion of the worship of God. The true Israelite and the true believer has a burden for God's worship. We see that here in a number of ways. We see that initially in a way of priority. Look at verse number one. Now it came to pass when the wall was built, and I had set up the doors and the porters and the singers and the Levites were appointed that I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the ruler of the palace, charge over Jerusalem. Now, now what, what is there within the English version? It makes sense in itself, but if I was to supply an additional word, uh, perhaps then it would be even more emphatic. When the wall was built, and when I had set up the doors, and when I had appointed the porters and the Levites and the, and the singers, then I gave my brother, etc. Only after he had done the building of the wall and then the doors, and having established that work, he then appoints the porters, the singers, and the Levites. And after that, he begins to deal with the matters of the civil government. First things first. And first of all was the importance of getting things set right in the worship of God. He appoints men who would be responsible for the services of the temple. And after that, he then gives directions to Hananiah and Hananiah. We all know and appreciate that God places worship as man's chief priority. Our first duty is to love God. And after that, our neighbor. That love for God is manifested in public and private worship. Now, worship in both the Old and the New Testament was more than singing. Singers are mentioned here. It involves reading and the sacraments and the preaching and the giving. All of this is worship, and the, the Lord is speaking. And he's instructing us again. Don't let other things distract your devotion for God and Christ. Your labors, family life, church 
activities can distract us from worship. We can be so busy doing the duties that we have that we lose out with God. We get on to the next stage and we forget the first thing, the matter of our heart and a heart of devotion for God. And so we have that matter of priority here. Are we committed to that? Is that a chief concern in our lives? That no matter what else might happen, I'm going to spend time with God today. No matter what else might happen in the weekend, I'm, I'm going to seek all I can to be active in the worship of God in the public place of worship. So priority is here. You've also the matter of purity. I turn over now to, to verse 63 and following. For having dealt with all of the matter of the, of the, the, the genealogy, you come regarding the priests, and they're mentioned here. And the priestly line in verse 64, it says this, These sought to register among those that were reckoned by genealogy, but it was not found. Therefore were they as polluted, put from the priesthood. And the Chirjatha said unto them that they should not eat of the most holy things, till there stood up priests with Urim and Thummim. Again, it's a strange, uh, strange account, uh, perhaps very unfamiliar to our, our thinking today. The reference is made to, to, to these people in the list in verse number 63. It mentions made to them being polluted. They couldn't prove their genealogy. It's used elsewhere that were polluted regarding those who defile the priesthood by their behavior. They behave not regarding God's word and they were therefore not appointed due to their uh, behavior. But here the issue, here the issue has to do with the importance of those who are appointed as priests that they could prove who they were. That was vital in those days. Again, you, you, just, nobody could, or it couldn't just be anybody who serves a priest. You had to have the right line, the lineage. And just all we're saying here is that Nehemiah was not prepared to simply put up something that had a form of worship. He wanted to make sure the worship that he established was done the right way. Vital. Paul warns at the end of Colossians chapter 2 that there is such a thing as a show of wisdom and will worship. So there is priority, there is purity, and there is also provision. Verse 72. You have a, well, verse 70 and following. You have the details regarding the giving into the treasury. Yeah, take it 72. And that which the rest of the people gave was 20,000 drams of gold and 2,000 pounds of silver and three score and seven priest garments. So the priests and the Levites and the porters and singers and some of the people and ethnonyms and all Israel dwelt in their cities. And when the seventh month came, the children of Israel were in their cities. And so you have here, you have a provision for worship. Reminds again of the necessity of such provision. The work of God requires financial provision. And that provision should be with a spur of generosity. And we see that here. God loves the cheerful giver. And there is a recognition of that provision. And God is not unrighteous to forget our labors of love. But again, we see in their provision, we see a reflection of their hearts. And one of the things you, you, you see in church life is when trouble comes into the church. And people become disgruntled and lose out with God. Well, you see a number of things. You see the permitting suffering. You, you see the, uh, the volume and the heart and the praise suffering. 
And you also see the giving going down. It's always the case. God's people lose their heart in the worship of God. And they begin to be obsessed with the, the bitterness and all of the divisions that are, uh, that are coming into the word of God. And so when God blesses, he is pleased to provide for his work. And when God's people are in the right place, they are pleased to provide for the work. Uh, not in a grudging spirit, but in a recognition that the work of God and the witness of God, it requires this matter of provision. And so it's a reflection of their, of their heart for worship. And so Nehemiah is, is showing this again. There is the establishing of the worship of God's people in these terms of priority and purity and provision. In the third place then, there is the appointing of leaders over God's people. And we see that back in verse number two. He gives his brother Hananiah and Hananiah, the ruler of the palace, charge over Jerusalem. I'm going to say it again. It is God's will for his people that they live in an organized fashion with a leadership structure as sheep with a shepherd. The Lord is the chief shepherd, but there are in Old Testament times as in you, there are under shepherds appointed to take the charge of the work of God. Two are mentioned here. Hananiah is hardly mentioned at all because he's been dealt with already in chapter 1. Hananiah is mentioned here in verse 2 in the second part as the ruler of the palace. These are men, first of all, of proven ability. The leaders of the Lord's people should not be novices. I didn't say they shouldn't be young, but they shouldn't be novices. Faithful is used here. He was a faithful man in verse number 2. And when we, could, we could see that word faithful as describing someone who is full of faith. He's strong in his belief. But I said that's not how the word is generally used in the Old Testament. Even regarding God, when God is faithful, it's a word that indicates his reliability, his trustworthiness. And so it is for Hananiah. And for Hananiah, and particularly Hananiah here, he's a faithful man. He is reliable. He is dependable. I remember once hearing a phrase of something of this nature. And the idea was that the work of God is not to be a refuge for those who cannot find anything else to do. It's not how it should be. Those who are given positions in the Lord's work are those who have proven their ability. So these men were proven in their ability. And there were men who were preeminent in their spirituality. Look what it says about them. And feared God, and it says this, above many. To fear God as a term in the Old Testament is essentially a summary term of the life of the believer. Essentially to be saved was to fear God. A living awareness of God. A desire to obey God and not man. A desire to have God's smile and God's favor. Not God's frown. The man who fears God will do what is right no matter what it might cost him. They're more concerned about what God thinks than what their peers think or what anybody else thinks, be their parents or leaders or anybody else. They're going to fear God. They're going to do his rights. That is how religion is defined in the word of God. We often define religion in terms of experience. We have a heart, and that's very, very important. But in the outworkings of that, we see men and women who fear God. The church 
is to appoint men to leadership who stand out in terms of their spirituality. Men of faith and courage. Such activity, of course, only by the Holy Ghost. And we've already noticed in recent studies that are the, the characteristics of the elder in Titus and First Timothy. Those qualifications are much more about character than they are about gift. And these things should be so for all the men of God. I think of our young people, if they come to us in the days to come, and they, they say that they want to, to work for God, they want to serve God in the church, a preacher, a missionary. It's good to have those desires. But those who have those desires, they ought to prove themselves to be faithful. God-fearers. Men and women of godly character. No matter what their giftedness might be, if they lack godly character, then they have no place in the work of God. And so you have the appointing of leaders over God's people. And these men of character and proven ability. In the fourth place, we have the directing for the safety of God's people. And that's verse number three. There are these practical directives given to ensure safety. In essence, don't open up the gates until there's enough light to see. Make sure they're shut well and closed tight. And put watchmen upon the walls, each for their own place. And then I said, don't rely on the walls themselves. They've been built, they're good walls. But be practical. I think the application is that we may erect walls of truth. And we, we've applied the subject of the walls, particularly in the matter of doctrinal orthodoxy. We may have a sound confession of faith. But the confession of faith must be used and applied. You can stand upon the truth of Christ's person and work as taught in our confession of faith. But when somebody comes in and teaches error, you've got to apply your confession and get them out. And so it is in so many areas of the, of the doctrine of God. So many areas of the doctrine of salvation. We, we believe, for example, we believe in the, uh, the change that God, God brings in people's hearts by the rebirth. So when we come, when we come to examine people for membership of the church, how do you apply the doctrine? You believe the doctrine of regeneration, and we believe that that doctrine involves a change in people's character. Therefore, when they come to apply for membership, we should not just simply say to them, do you believe you're born again? They say, oh yes, I believe I'm born again. We ought to be examining those people to see are there evidences in their life of the rebirth that's not inappropriate that's applying the truth to the situation we find ourselves in and so you can have the walls erected but never use them never see them as a, a defense of God's people and a defense of God's work you don't apply that doctrine what happens you, you fail to apply the doctrine of regeneration and membership and you get an unsaved membership who then vote in elections for unsaved elders and ministers who don't teach truth. I'm not making this up. This has happened in Presbyterian churches across the world. They confessed the Westminster Confession of Faith, but they didn't apply the doctrine of regeneration in the area of church membership. They didn't bar the door. An error comes in. An apostasy follows. And so we see here there is a necessity of, yes, erecting truth. 
But in so many ways, you've got to apply the truth as it finds itself. And of course, again, uh, there is that very necessary word of application. And that is that the truth that we believe uh, must not just be applied in a very general sense. But as it says at the end of verse number three, and every one to be over against his house. Again, these things begin in the family. And there is a necessity of, again, the, the men of God, those who are godly fathers, that they apply the truth in their own homes and seek to bring that to bear upon their own situation. And then there is, very quickly in the fifth place, there is the reckoning of the genealogy of God's people. And that's the, the bulk of the chapter. A census is conducted according to a reliable genealogy. Verse 5, I found a register of the genealogy. Heritage and lineage is vital for the Jew. So that they could prove that Abraham was their father. Remember the old tale in the New Testament? We have Abraham to your father. I think there are three purposes for Nehemiah. The numbers were used in the calculations of the 1 and 10 in chapter 11 for those who would be appointed to go to Jerusalem. But there's a greater purpose. There was the necessity of ensuring that the messianic line could be proven. They'd been to Babylon. There's been confusion and trouble. The people have been scattered. But the promise of God that Christ would come from the tribe of Judah was still the promise of God. And it was vital for our belief even tonight. It was vital that this generation of returning exiles would connect their heritage back to the patriarchs. And that there would be no doubt that Jesus was indeed the promised Christ. And that his lineage could be traced all the way back to the point where he was the son of David. And the son of Abraham. And the son of Adam. That genealogy was vital for the confirmation of the identity of Jesus as indeed the promised Christ. But there was also the personal matter. It mattered to these people to prove their covenant heritage. Covenant membership today is not by genealogy as it was in the Old Testament. Membership today is through the rebirth Born again, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. But yet, it is vital to trace our covenant membership. That we can take the promises of Hebrews chapter 8. I will be their God and they shall be my people. That we can hear those promises, their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. It really matters that you're a member of the new covenant. And of course, that membership is, by the way, of faith in Christ. And through faith in Him, you come to know your sins forgiven. And you're under the reliable, faithful, covenantal promises of God. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Let the Bible Speak from Malvern Free Presbyterian Church. We extend an invitation to all to join us as we worship the Lord each week. You will be made very welcome. The church is situated at 80 Mallon Road, Malvern, Pennsylvania. We meet for worship on the Lord's Day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. A Bible study and prayer meeting is also held on Tuesday evening at 7 p.m. If you'd like more information about the gospel or the church, please call 610-993-3170 or email malvernfpc at yahoo.com. 
we preach Christ crucified. 